Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, Russ Stanton, editor of the Los Angeles Times, sits down with NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik to talk about the evolution of the newspaper. Stanton, who held the title of innovation editor prior to his new post, oversaw the difficult process of transforming the Times into a well-integrated web and print product. His appointment as editor of the Los Angeles Times comes at a crucial time for the paper. Amidst staff cuts following the departure of his three predecessors in quick succession and during the coverage of an historic election, Stanton addresses the well-publicized rap story disaster, speaks of plans to increase ethnic and age diversity among Times reporters, and his determination to have a business that lasts another 126 years. Recorded before a live audience at the Autry National Center as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is David Falkenflick. appreciate the opportunity to join you. Thanks to Socolo and KPCC and, of course, uh, our guest. I must say that three of my favorite values are eclectic, roving, and free. So an event like tonight is uh, particularly uh, a good one. I like to think of myself, I think, honorably and truthfully as a Californian, but the person I'm uh, about to introduce you to uh, gets that claim quite naturally. He grew up in uh, Tulare in the San Joaquin Valley, started on student newspapers in junior high school, and persevered, I might add, which is the impressive part. Uh, he worked for the Visalia Times Delta, the San Bernardino County Sun, the Riverside Press Enterprise, and the Orange County Register. His schooling also in California, a 1981 graduate of Cal State Sacramento, and uh, he joined the Los Angeles Times in 1997 after a decade at the Orange County Register. In the Times, he uh, joined as a reporter, became deputy business editor, and he became last year, and I love this, uh, the innovation editor for the Los Angeles Times, and we'll talk a bit about that. I'd like to introduce to you Russ Stanton, the 14th editor of the Los Angeles Times. <clears throat> Hello, sir. Thank you. So, Thank you. It's nice to be here. Here at the Autry Center. I guess I want to start with what I think is the most intriguing and provocative element of your bio, your CV, which is the question of uh, the innovation editor. What's that all about? Well, that was the weirdest job title I've ever had. People outside of our industry thought it was a really cool, cutting-edge deal. People inside of our business thought it was pretty ridiculous. But in any event, the nature of the job a year ago was we had had this uh, much-publicized internal group called the Spring Street Committee that took a look at how we were doing. It was formed to figure out ways to make the newspaper better, and at that point, the newspaper was doing pretty well, and our website wasn't doing so hot. So the right there came up with a series of recommendations, one of which was for this new job to name someone to a, a figure out ways to rapidly improve the quality of our website. Being anchored in the print newsroom, which is where all of our, at that point, almost all of our reporters were, and uh, to be able to feed, feed and upgrade the website. I started that job on January 24th at 11 a.m. From there, about halfway through the year, as we started to make some pretty terrific headway on the web, Jim O'Shea, who was the editor at the time then, asked, uh, as our business started to rapidly shift, what could we do to make the paper more readable and more accessible to folks? And so we formed a new uh, group of folks that was called the reInvent Committee, which was 28 people from the website and the newspaper. And uh, the goal there was to come up with a bunch of creative ways to make the paper more readable. And that group delivered a fairly big report last July. So we're, we're hopeful that the innovation editor title wasn't really a way of saying the committee editor title. Correct. All right. So what insights did you get from this, what is a fairly unusual job to hold in a major American newspaper? What did you learn about the the paper or the news organization, I guess, as you think of the LA Times now, sure. uh, that you hadn't necessarily keyed on, in on before. In my, the job I had before as business editor, you can get really, and this is the case with a lot of the jobs of the paper, I mean, we're competing in a world today where there's just an unbelievable amount of media competition. With the internet, the growth of the internet, there's an awful lot of background noise with blogs and what have you. And so in, my, in the, my prior job, I was very narrowly focused on putting out the best business section we could for readers in Southern California. And having been the innovation editor for several months, 
I remember reflecting one day going, boy, I'm really embarrassed at how little we understood the internet. And in my department, I was running the technology crew and had been a technology editor in a prior job. And so we, we understood really well how the internet was changing uh, everybody else's business except ours. And so what I learned from that was that we, had, we have a really large and terrifically engaged newsroom. And in any group of an organization of, of any size, you've got a, folks who are early adopters. And so some people really uh, understood the issues we were wrestling with, and those are the ones we gravitated towards the most in recruiting for the, for the innovation and reinvent effort. But it was also interesting that uh, we also had a large percentage of folks who, who knew how to use the Internet but didn't really want to didn't understand uh, how it could help our, our, uh, improve our readership and our business, and were pretty reluctant to embrace some of it. So, so let's, up let's... until 12 weeks ago, that was the hardest job I'd ever had right. in 27 now, years in the business. Presumably, had you been uh, you know, anointed pope, for example, a year or two ago, that might have been challenging. This is certainly a challenging job. Let's make a few of the things that you've uh, mentioned more tangible. So, for example, when you were asked to make the paper more readable. What does that mean, and how would the people listening or the people uh, here with us tonight uh, see that differently sure. online or I'm on gonna the paper? I'm going to venture a guess, but ask for a show of hands of people who are subscribers of the LA Times. Outstanding. See, if we just have this room, if we could just duplicate this around Southern California, we'd be, we'd be done. Also curious how many NPR listeners are out there. Yeah, okay, good. See, I told you, we, got, we share a and lot I'm of the same. And I'm guessing on KPCC, pretty much 100%. There you go. We have had a pretty good uh, internal research mechanism at the paper for a long time, and it dawned on me as business editor that we hadn't had access or been, we hadn't had access to that information in several years. And so the first thing we did was sort of dive into that and figure out what are people telling us. Twice a year, our circulation department does what's called a stop study, and they go into the field and ask people who subscribe to the paper why they stop taking it. Come to find out that we've been hearing the same answers for more than 10 years. And what is that answer? <laughs> and we haven't acted on very much of it. Well, there are four primary reasons why people stop taking the paper. The first one is uh, that they don't have enough time to read it, which I think is a polite way of saying they have decided that there are other ways they'd rather spend their time in the morning than with us. So that's kind of a, could, there could be multiple answers to that, but the, what, how, however you want to slice it, it's not, not good. Number two is usually a delivery problem with circulation department. Number three, uh, we're too liberal. Number four is we're too conservative. <laughs> the two so. sides should have softball games on Sundays. Uh. So take, take an issue or a subject or a city or a story and tell me how you might have covered it three years ago and how you'd want to sort of people here tonight to have read that story today in a more readable, a more uh, approachable... Okay. Uh, yeah, let me think a minute here. We, I, I guess I'll use our, our campaign and our political coverage as an example, and I won't pick on a specific story right off the top of my head, although I'll probably think of one driving home tonight that would have made a great example. In the election four years ago, on any of these major daily stories, we would have, I mean, there was only one way to tell the story, and that was with words. And we would assign two or three reporters to it. We'd report the hell out of it all day long, and we would barf back out to you every thing we could find out about the story. It would generally ran longer than 35 or 40 inches. That's a long story. That's a long story. Work. Four years ago, it might have jumped more than once inside the paper. Sure. So that was been the only way we would, have, we would have told something like that. Today, and we've done this with several of them, and I'm sorry I can't pick out an example right off the top of my head, but in any Hillary or Obama or McCain story we would have done, we would do now, we would start with words, but we would quickly move to uh, a number of other f venues and formats, including there'd be video available to go with the story. We would break down the talking points uh, into more digestible uh, breakout boxes where you could look at the quotes or the background of the story. Uh, we would give you the same sort of the same type of information, but we'd break it down in a lot more digestible parts. We think we've been pretty successful in doing that in ways that don't in insult your intelligence. I know there are some newspapers who are really moving a lot more to making things as simple as humanly possible, but we have the benefit of having one of the most affluent and educated readership bases of any publication, not only in the country, but in the world, so we have to be respectful of folks' in intelligence, but at the same time, we also have to respect your time, because you're all busy people uh, who have busy lives, and um, you don't have all day to spend with us like we would like you to, so... Those, are some of, those would be some examples of, it would be video on the campaign this year. We've got a, uh, one of the top-rated blogs on the entire Internet called Top of the Ticket that we use to break a lot of news and analyze and dissect some of the things that the candidates have said. Four years ago, we, I don't believe we had photo galleries online, so if McCain gave a speech somewhere, we could, we could show you how he spent his entire day from sunup to sundown in pictures, and we would have video and audio. to You could hear, you could hear McCain's speech unfiltered through us or read the, read the text and online, 
you know, we don't have any, uh, there's no space limitations. Uh, we don't have X number of columns that we, we only have to uh, fill every day, so we can, we can go on for a, a great length if people are so inclined. So kind of counterintuitively, although people tend to think of print as the more thoughtful, longer, more context and texture-rich medium, in some ways you're saying things in printer may be a little tighter and things on the web may actually have more room to, yeah. to breathe and grow. Yep. Yes, they do. And, and you see that uh, other, other publications are doing the same thing. We don't, we don't have the same, uh, like I say, space limitations online. And it's interesting that when I took the job, the innovation editor job a year and a half ago, there was this, I think, sort of a theory that people wouldn't read as much online. They wouldn't stay with the story as long, but we found that not to be the case at all, that if they're really interested in the story and it's really well told, they'll read it all the way to the end, and we know that because we have a bunch of measurements, including time people spend reading a story, so we can see if, if, you know, if they spend six or eight or ten minutes with it, we know they read it all the way to the bottom. Well, you talked a little bit about uh, political coverage, and uh, you the newspaper has a very rich tradition of uh, political coverage, national political as well as state and local. Mm-hmm. How central is that to the, the mission that you see the Times uh, possessing these days? It's, it's our bread and butter. I mean, it's, the, it's, it's the, uh, the things that lots of people in our industry and those who care about our democracy are wringing their hands over as, the, as our industry continues to shrink is who's going to be the watchdog and provide the, uh, the oversight and do the digging and uh, the reporting to find out what's really going on out there. This election in particular has just been, you know, an un- unbelievably great for journalism everywhere. The races have been tight and interesting. There's been a lot to write about. And we see uh, not only in print where we can, you know, in print you don't really know who's reading which stories. Online we know exactly which stories are being read, how much they're being read, um, where the readers are coming from. It's been really interesting to see that um, our last in our report we just had out for April, our, our, of our top ten stories in the month of April, five of them were from, were from the uh, political campaign. So this, as a topic, is really huge with readers, and we're giving it all we got. Well, it's interesting, and that tracks with what you see in television stations and news channels, where they're seeing their viewership grow significantly. <clears throat> and, you know, meanwhile, local news directors have told you for years, well, you know, politics isn't really a winning subject for viewers. Yeah. Actually, when it's interesting, it Not is. Not true. It really is. You're listening to Russ Stanton, editor of the Los Angeles Times, with David Folkenflik. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Next time on Day to Day, film director Roman Polanski, desired by movie studios and wanted by the law. The director fled the country in 1978 to avoid prison. He was convicted of having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Everyone thinks they know what happened. I don't think anyone other than the two of them know what really happened. A new documentary tries to sort out the story. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cunningham. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Remember the good old days? This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Bank of America has announced that it. Good afternoon. I'm Pat Morrison. It's something of an article of faith in business in Southern California that the cost of doing this. More NPR and local news on 89.3 KPCC. Put down the iPhone and step out of the car. As of July 1st, adults have to use hands-free phone devices if they're driving, and drivers under 18 can't talk or text behind the wheel at all. I'm Pat Morrison. Arnold Schwarzenegger's already threatened to lower the boom on his kids about driving, phoning, and texting. What about you? Are you glad there's now a law to back you up, or do you think the government is meddling with your kids? Let's chat about it safely, of course, here Monday, beginning at 1 p.m. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up.
KPCC brings you news without commercial clutter, and we can do that because listeners like you provide most of the money it takes to run KPCC, not commercial advertisers. Do your part and become a member today at kpcc.org. And thanks. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now it's back to Russ Stanton, editor of the Los Angeles Times, with David Folkenflik. There is this sort of unpleasant truth out there for newspapering as a whole, and for your institution in particular. This this very spring, plans have been put in place, as I understand it, to commence the reduction of the D.C. Bureau. We talked a little bit about this from about 47 folks to ultimately later in the year, I believe, about 28. Mm-hmm. That is a significant, significant loss. I think it's more, I'm no math major, but I think it's you know, more than a third or 40 percent. How do you sustain your bread and butter at a time when so much of the people who do that work are being sure. taken away. The numbers are a little bit deceiving. Our actual, of, of the folks who are in our Washington, D.C. Bureau who cover the federal government and politics, that number was actually about 37 down to 28, so it wasn't as bad as it sounded on the surface of it, but still not, uh, not a good thing. Fortunately, we have the second largest collection of journalists in Washington, D.C. who uh, don't work for the Washington Post, and despite uh, what we just went through, we still have the second largest contingent of reporters and editors in Washington, D.C. who don't work for the Washington Post. We weren't given an exact number to trim down to. We were sort of given orders to make it smaller somehow, and we came up with a plan working very closely with our two terrific editors in Washington, D.C., Doyle McManus, our bureau chief, and Tom McCarthy, our deputy. We are able to cover everything that we think is important to our readers with the 28 folks that we got. As far as I'm concerned, that bureau needs not to get any smaller ever again. That said, the new chairman of the, the Tribune Company, Sam Zell, in meeting with that bureau and, and in the larger Tribune bureaus, the Chicago Tribune, the Orlando Sentinel, my alma mater, the Baltimore Sun, others, you know, he was talking about the crunch that's occurring. He talked uh, at great length and with intensity and some impressive Anglo-Saxon words. He talked about <laughs> what the budget crunch was doing to his ability to, in fact, just meet the company's debt payments. And he said a line which I think was very interesting was taken very strongly by some of your employees. He said, you people are all overhead and what he meant is, it's not a profit center. It doesn't generate really revenues. It might generate some page clicks, but it doesn't generate revenues on its own. And he said, you have to think differently about this. What do you make of the idea that the Washington Bureau is overhead? Well, if it is overhead, it's the best overhead in the business. You know, Sam has a, uh, he has a really, and, and his top lieutenants have really, they have pretty unorthodox ways of trying to get your attention. They, and they've been... They've been pretty effective in, in doing that. I mean, he's, what he's trying to do is shake up a culture, that, some of which is, is what we brought to the table when we were acquired by the Tribune. A larger part of it, though, is the Tribune company itself. He's trying to shake up a culture that, it was, that was pretty buttoned down, not very risk-taking, and, and slow to react. And so he's trying to get people's attention in short order. I think in the case of Washington, he was in the Bureau about six or eight weeks after the deal closed, and I don't think we had any good financial news in any week since that deal closed. And he was, I think he was both surprised by the severity of the downturn in our revenue, and he might have been wondering what he had just bought. I suspect may, maybe our folks bore the brunt of his frustration a little more than some of the other stops that he made. And the, the thing that he was asking for, though, uh, has been talked about in Tribune Company since the merger in 2000, which was in any corporate merger, there's always overlap. Uh, there's the corporate office, and there's overlapping offices. And Washington was the biggest place where, in that bureau, we had bodies from nine different newspapers inside the company. And there was an awful lot of overlap between what we were all covering. To someone who doesn't fully understand journalism or newspapers, you look at all that and go, God, what a horrible waste to have all these people doing the same stories. Mm-hmm. We're trying to spend time, educate Sam and his guys a little bit more about the journalism business on the one hand, and on the other hand, they're educating us rather rapidly about how quickly we need to bring about some change in our business so we can have one that's going to last another 126 years. So you're talking tonight to a few hundred Angelinos and also, uh, we hope, a lot more on the radio a bit later on. Tell me how you would define, in this time, given your financial situation, how you would define the mission of the Los Angeles Times. Sure. Well, we just went through this exercise over the past uh, eight weeks. I've taken uh, the top two dozen top two dozen editors from the paper off-site for several days, and we've circled the wagons and are working to come up with a plan 
that's going to sustain us for the long haul because we're wordsmiths and we would still be locked in a room somewhere if we were trying to agree on a mission statement. When you do that with 26 word people, as you would know, it would take forever. So we didn't even attempt a mission statement. But the, at the end of the day, our, our, what our goal is, is to be sort of the om, omnipresent source of news and information for people in Southern California uh, in whatever medium it is they use to, to obtain that. That's our goal. And we're not set up at present to deliver on that. And that's one of the things that we're working on in our newsroom is, in this, in this day and age, and this will probably change in the coming months, but that's print, web, television, radio, mobile devices, and Lord knows what else somebody's going to invent in the next couple of years. Uh, suffice to say, we think we're pretty terrific at delivering a, a newspaper. We're getting really good at, on the website. We haven't been very good on TV. We have little or no radio presence, and we don't have much to offer in the way of mobile. So we've got a lot of work cut out for us over the next three years. We need to train our staff in these skills. We need to invest in technology, especially on mobile and in radio, to deliver, figure out ways to deliver the really terrific journalism that we do in print. And with our, our sister company, KTLA, you probably been, if you've been reading the paper closely, uh, you know that they sold their, uh, Sam sold their uh, building several weeks ago. And in Fort Lauderdale, where we have a newspaper and TV station, they merged the two into one building. And they're going to be working together a lot more. I would, well, don't be surprised if you see that coming to a TV station and a, a newspaper near you in the coming year. So we talked a bit about delivery, and I want to talk about the web a bit more in a moment. Uh, one of the questions that I have is I often feel as a reader, and I do read online quite a lot, my hometown paper after all. Appreciate uh, that. I, I guess it's getting you page views, right? You betcha. I feel that I learn a lot, probably a lot more from the L.A. Times than I do from the Post or the New York Times or other major news outlets about particularly things like the issue of immigration Mm -hmm. and issues that affect uh, populations here, especially I would think Latinos and uh, Asian Americans. I don't often find that I see, I feel that as a reader and as uh, somebody who's white, life reflected for Latinos and Mm -hmm. for Asian Americans. How do you guys, how do you feel you do in terms of doing a job reaching those readers and those people here? And how do you hope to build on that? Sure. Um, well, you have to go back a, l- a little bit in history over the past 20 years to see how we've, we've attacked that ish- those issues on more than one occasion. In the 80s, we, had, we put together, a, or was it the 90s? I can't remember. We've attacked this so many times from so many different angles. I'm sure we, we've had the right strategy at one point. I just don't remember which time that was. <laughs> but we had, a, we, had a, we had what we called the Latino Initiative, where we grou- grouped together several dozen reporters across all facets of the paper. We pulled them out of their sections. They were run by two terrific Latino uh, editors, and we fanned out across the region and really wrote a lot about Latino life, culture, business business owners, sports stars, you name it. We won a Pulitzer Prize for our coverage of that in the 80s, late 80s, I believe. Similarly, a couple years after that, we did the same thing with the Asian American community and pulled uh, together a lot of, we have a large number of uh, Asian American reporters and did the same thing in that that produced a terrific series of stories. And this is an issue that a lot of media organizations wrestle with is there's, to my knowledge, there's only two ways to cover this stuff. You either try to mainstream the coverage of these people. So when you write about a school issue or a business issue, you don't just talk to Anglo people who are are Caucasian. You try to fan out and talk to different business owners or different teachers or different students of different ethnicity, which is the way I prefer to do it. Or you, you pull people out and do... and focus the bead on that, which, has, which I feel has a, way, a tendency to ghettoize the coverage, and that way only a few people are responsible for covering this one slice of it instead of making it a broader coverage where you're reaching you know, across the spectrum. In one of our many uh, incarnations, a former chairman of the company, Mark Willis, at one point came up with the extremely out-of-the-box idea to reward bonuses to reporters who quoted people who weren't white as a way... <laughs> as a way of uh, really trying to stimulate that, that was a very unconventional approach. I don't think we actually implemented it, but it was an idea that got floated. Which so, is to say even the idea of brash uh, chairman and CEOs is not a new one for them. Not a new time. one for us. That's, that's yeah. very true. So then fast forward to the mid and uh, late 90s and early 2000s, we used to have a fairly aggressive diversity hiring campaign in the newsroom that, for reasons I'm not quite clear why, sort of came to a stop about 2000, 2001, and we hired lots of terrific people over that time, but not a lot of them were, were ethnically diverse. So we have fallen behind in that, in that regard, which is kind of ridiculous given the, the city that we represent and cover is the most uh, ethnically diverse city probably in the whole country, if not the world. So, again, I've only been in the job 12 weeks, but if, about a month ago I ordered up uh, the restart of a program we call MetPro, which 
brings in. Uh, we've also, as a newsroom, we've gotten kind of older. Our staff is primarily in their 40s and 50s, and, and that may be one of the reasons why we're not reaching a lot of young people today. So this program, which was disbanded uh, under Tribune a couple years ago, but in the old program, we would bring in two dozen uh, really terrific young, ethnically diverse reporters and train them for a, uh, six months. We would send them out into various uh, departments around the paper for an, another year and a half. We would train them, and then we had to put them up for draft, and all the Tribune papers got their pick of these guys, and we got to keep like one or two of them. So now we restarted the program a month ago. We're, bring, we're bringing in 12 folks this summer, none of whom I hope will be uh, white, and uh, they're all going to be under 30, and we get to keep, if the, the, the way we're going to do this program is, uh, if you cut it, you get to stay. And so we're going to do that every year for the next couple of years as a way of diversifying our newsroom, both from an age and an um, ethnicity standpoint. And I, I think that will help us to better understand our communities a little bit, a, a little bit more. I was struck, uh, one of your predece- a number of your predecessors were just interviewed uh, for a piece published in Los Angeles Magazine. Mm-hmm. I believe it was Shelby Coffey who recounted that uh, the late and great uh, Otis Chandler said there were th- told him there were three things holding together Los Angeles, sunshine, freeways, and the Los Angeles Times. I wonder, I thought about that, and I also thought about the fact that the Times is sort of encircled by papers that are, are, are desperately struggling. If you look at the LA Daily News, if you look at the Long Beach Press-Telegram, if you right. look at the Orange County Register, right. how does in a time of its own, in some ways, financial constriction, it fill that gap and that need for people who live in the greater Los Angeles area? Well, that's something we spent some time on in our yesterday and have spent a great deal of time on. I mean, it's been rather striking to see um, the and I've worked for almost all of them earlier in my career, <laughs> all of these news organizations that gave us a really hard time in the 80s and 90s are in headlong retreat, uh, much more so than we are. The Register just got done with its third round of layoffs in a year, you know, inside of a 12-month period, and their circulation now is lower than when I started there in 1987. And that's an, a, a concentrated market that's a lot more affluent than the one we, we serve, and that's pretty, that's pretty disturbing stuff. Same thing with the Daily News. One of the things that Sam has asked for, and one of the things that I forgot to mention, one of the other things, I think number five on our what readers want more from us is uh, more local news, is what we've got we've to do more of. And some of that is going to get to, as readers, you guys give us conflicting signals. You love our, you tell us anyway, you love our foreign and national coverage, but then you also ask for uh, an equally robust local report. And uh, we're, not in the, we're not in the position that we have been in historically to be able to deliver on a size basis, all of those things that we're, we've used to do. And that's one of the things that we're, we're really struggling with internally is we haven't been able to flip the mental switch and acknowledge we still don't have 1,300 people in our newsroom. And that's one of the things I'm trying to get people to focus on is we have to do a much better job these days of picking our spots and to differentiate ourselves from all of, the, again, the competition and the noise out there. So what are the things that the LA Times can cover and for its readers, and regardless of what medium you consume us in, that nobody else can do? And the big no-brainer is Southern California. And in, in that vein, there are a bunch of topics that we're looking at as well, like education, traffic, development, the environment, real estate, you know, the major sports teams in, in town, Hollywood. Those are areas where, as we get smaller, we have to be more judicious about what it is we're going to cover and focus our resources there. So we are in the process of, and we're, I'm, we're on track to deliver a plan by June, where we're going to have to redeploy some of our resources and take people from some areas and move them into others where we think we can get the most bang for our buck. And, and obviously some of that's going to be our local staff. And um, one of the things that I'm struggling with that we've, uh, uh, I've inherited uh, as number 14 is over the past six or seven years, the brunt of the cuts to our news gathering operation have been in the local report. And, you know, we're not going to be able to go back in and add all the folks that we have cut out back since then. So we're going to have to, I'll be happy when we get to the point where it is only a zero-sum game and not a continuously shrinking one. I remember, uh, you know, you speak of having to sort of make smart deployments as opposed to building. I believe it was in the mid to late 90s that the LA Times first had its uh, pornography beat reporter. I thought, there's a beat you don't see every day in a daily newspaper. (laughs) Speaking of Hollywood, how important is the entertainment beat to the LA Times? It's huge. You know, if you're, it's what the town is known for. It's what it, we're best known for. It is our number one export. Uh, you travel to any foreign country and look at the uh, a culture that is splayed across billboards and buildings and cinemas around the world, and it's, you know, it's Hollywood, for better or for worse. We have not quite half of our business section staff is devoted to covering the business of Hollywood, and we've got 
54 people in calendar who cover Hollywood and the larger arts scene in Southern California. So it's, it's big, and it's something that we feel like we have, to, we have to own, we can own, and we're doing, we think, a pretty good job competitively with our national competitors. And in that space, we would probably consider the journal, Wall Street Journal and the New York Times as our primary competition on that front. Sure. I mean, you think back to this winter and the strike, and uh, there are a lot of specialty publications here, and there's the Journal and the Times, as you mm-hmm. say, but certainly people I talk to in the trade were also all you know, dissecting with Talmudic precision each dependent clause in your, uh, in your paper at that time. Uh, a very interesting topic. Um, one thing I feel is worth a little coverage is, of course, a very ambitious project that was done this year, and it sort of was on your doorstep in, I think, hour three of your, your editorship. But it's, of course, the Tupac Shakur story. Sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit in retrospect, we, you know, for, for the one person who hasn't, uh, wherever you are, who hasn't read that or about that, of course, it was a story that was retracted by the Times about the possible complicity or at least acquiescence of Sean Combs in uh, the attempt, the assault on uh, uh, one of his uh, rap rivals. First, I want to say that I've covered a lot of uh, stories that were disproven or retracted, and the speed with which the LA Times acted in this case was unusual and commendable. You almost never see that kind of rapidity. At the same time, it suggested uh, a fairly flimsy foundation, ultimately, for the, for the smoking gun to be able to, to take it down that quickly and for you guys to have to back off, although, again, with commendable vigor. I want to ask you a little bit about how that happened how that got to print in that way? Sure. I don't know how much more we could have done in explaining uh, the error of our ways. Uh, within hours of, of finding out about it, we had a story up on the website that acknowledged that it was... The basic problem with the story was we relied on documents that we believed to be real that were fabricated by a con man who was doing time in prison. Not a good situation. My old print ways, I'm still measuring things in the column inch, but we published a 38-inch apology and fairly detailed explanation on uh, day one on the front page. The story didn't, never made the front page. It ran on the c- cover of calendar. And within our, our allotted time frame to, to uh, make other fixes, we've then published a 15-inch retraction. You're listening to Russ Stanton, editor of the Los Angeles Times, with David Folkenflick. On Wednesday, June 18th, Sokolo presents Gay LA versus Gay San Francisco, moderated by J. Edwin Bacon Jr., rector at All Saints Church in Pasadena. Join us for an exploration of the gay and lesbian past of California's great urban rivals. Historians Nan Boyd and Daniel Hurowitz, as well as demographer Gary Gates, visit Sokolo to discuss the distinct gay communities of San Francisco and Los Angeles. Admission to these and all Sokolo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Los Angeles Times editor Russ Stanton in a moment. Stay tuned to SoCalor Radio. Is the system entrusted to assure our most basic need failing? That's the contention of author Paul Roberts in his new book, The End of Food. I'm Larry Mantle. Next time on Air Talk, we talk with Roberts in this follow-up to his book, The End of Oil. Is the food economy causing one of America's most serious future problems? We'll open up the phones and talk with Paul Roberts. Air Talk, weekday mornings at 10, here on 89.3 KPCC. Next time on The World, an unusual way to save the rainforest. Motorcycle manufacturers Harley-Davidson, Honda, and Suzuki have set up factories in the heart of Brazil's rainforest. The companies get tax breaks, local people have jobs, and fewer reasons to cut down trees. A free trade zone blossoms in the Amazon rainforest. Next time on The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand. Coming up, practicing... From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Cohen in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Claudia Vasquez. 
This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. Now, it's the Socalo audience's turn to ask the questions. Hi, my name is John, and I'd like to know, uh, you described ethnically what, what you did with diversity, trying to broaden it. What, what do you do as far as point of view and making sure that there's a diversity in the, uh, the, the ideas that are being put on the page? Well, we, I mean, we don't have any sort of formal plan in place, if you will, um, but that is, a, that is an issue that we're needing to be more sensitive to because, again, we do get, uh, if you're talking about politics or are we liberal or conservative, yeah, that's, a, that's one of the ones that our whole industry wrestles with, and we're trying to, um, you take it on a case-by-case basis and look at the stories when they come in and make sure that they feel fair. You know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, been a lot of talk over the years about trying to be objective, which I think is kind of a... a a hooey of a word. I mean, I, you know, everybody brings some baggage to their job, regardless if they're journalists or grocery store clerks or what have you. You bring your life experiences to it and your point of view. And I think being objective is, is not a possible thing. But what we, can, what we attempt to do in our jobs is try to be fair. You try to hear from both sides and, and talk to a, a range of sources on any given story to make sure you're getting all points of view and that you can, you can uh, figure out a way to meld those into something that will, be, that will make sense and help to distill a complicated set of issues into a readable story for a general audience. It's kind of a tr- really tricky uh, balancing act. So there is, a, uh, there is an organization, uh, and I can't remember their name offhand, but I met somebody from, uh, from there at the, at the editor's convention that, that specializes in sort of coming in and sort of sizing up your coverage. You know what the group I'm talking about? I know there are about 15 of them. Yeah, that can, come, that can come in and look at your coverage and help you figure out if, you've, if you have, if, if you look like you're skewing one way or the other. And we might, I might think about look at having those folks come in at some point later this year and taking a look at us. You know, it's interesting. You get, having been a reporter for a number of years, when you write a story, you get, uh, and especially at a large operation like ours where we've got a huge readership, huge and engaged readership base, you write a story and you hear you get it when you get it from both sides that your you know your story was biased one way or the other. I always view that as sort of a great you must have hit it right down the middle because both sides hated the story. Although I've sometimes achieved it where you get hit from both sides and everybody's right to hate the story. Yeah, well, it does that, happen. That too. So there is no formal process in place to answer your question, but we are trying to be more attuned to it, especially with the presidential race. There does actually go a fair amount of thought into. Where we play the stories on the page. When was the last time? Did Hillary get the f- top yesterday? Should we give it to Obama today? McCain, you know, wrestling, wrestling through all that. So that's an ongoing thing to monitor. It's also nice to hear a news executive uh, say all sides of a story rather than both, which, which you heard tonight. Because oftentimes on TV you hear, well, we have both sides. They club the hell out of each other, but we hear both sides. So it's a, it's a fair point. Next question, please. Kudos on implementing the new internship program where you're going to be having people under 30, which I think is really important. But I'm wondering whether you have a, a strategy that implements younger people or diverse views in management, because I think that if a newspaper stays old school, it will always be an old boys network. That's one part of my question. My second part of the question is, as a reader who is in my early 30s and does not read the news online, I'm a bit of a dinosaur, I guess, I believe in the printed version. And I'm just wondering if you have any strategies to not just think that young people 18 to 34 are only reading online, what are you doing to make them subscribers of the future as your, as your current subscribership starts to die out, good, basically? Good questions. <laughs> Fade away. Well, I like you. you can tell you're a journalism major because you can, you can get to the bottom line pretty quick. Uh, the, to get to the second part of your question, I think a lot of it has to do with our shot selection, and like it, it has to do with the stories that we choose to write. And again, we we have we have the blessing and the curse of the web to guide us to some degree in that. And I, I don't think that there's an editor of a newspaper in the country who could look at you in the eye and tell you that the web's had no effect on the stories they just decided to put on the front page because that's just not true. It is help us. It, it helps us see things, and uh, and you, we use it as a guide to maybe help us uh, calibrate interest in certain stories, but. We have, to, we have to do a better job, I think, of, and, and we've talked a lot about this in our retreats, is, is uh, coming up with information that people find useful to, to help them navigate their daily lives. A lot of consumer news. You've seen our business sections undergone a pretty dramatic change over the past couple of years to a much more focus on consumer news and uh, how to help you navigate how to buy a car, earthquake insurance, what have you. To your question about the, the uh, editing ranks, that's something that as, we, as we're, I think that will come as we, if we start hiring at the bottom, 
the younger folks that will grow into those jobs. Uh, that's going to take some time since we have, we have not had a concentrated effort in that. We have had some last year or so, especially in our California section, we've had a, a promoted a, a number of uh, younger reporters who are off to a really terrific start. So we're getting there, but we've got a ways to go yet. My name is Frank Pizzoro. I know that you've been discussing blogs, and I noticed there's a lot of blogs using other blogs as sources. And also you were speaking about trying to cover a large and diverse area. There's other media that are utilizing citizen journalists mm -hmm. to help cover turf. So kind of based on those two observations, where does the citizen journalist fit into your future plan? Sure. Coming to a website near you soon. There has been a lot of talk in, uh, in our business about the use of citizen journalists. In the coming months, we're gonna, uh, one of the ways we're going to try to attempt to get more local with you all is through a series of neighborhood pages that will roll out across the website that will be zip code targeted, uh, that will have information, things, a lot of database information like uh, the crime blotter in your neighborhood, the home sales in your neighborhood, school test scores in your neighborhood. And we can anchor it with those things, but there's also a lot of neighborhood issues community organizations, parent-teacher groups, community associations that folks, and again, uh, we have a pretty affluent and educated uh, readership base where we're going to turn some of the coverage over to you guys and let you tell us what's going on in Silver Lake or Montebello or Northwood portion of Irvine and see, uh, see how that works. There have been a number of publications that have been dabbling in that over the past year and having some success, including the Bakersfield, California, just up the freeway, which does a pretty nice job of that stuff. So you know, the, the big issue is, well, how do you know? I think you have to, you have to wait in slowly and see what, uh, how do we know the information's accurate or, or, uh, or authentic, and um, we have to figure out ways to, uh, to vet that. And, and, and we've seen in a number of cases, too, where the user community is also has, has proven to be a pretty good set of editors when folks get out of the line or, or maybe don't uh, project things properly. So that's something we're going to be dabbling with a lot more. You alluded to um, the affluent readers and your increased library coverage, and I'm wondering how Los Angeles is a city that also has a lot of poverty, and I'm wondering if you have any plans to more accurately reflect that life of living in Los Angeles. That's a good question, and yes, we do. We, for starters, I would point to our last year's coverage of the, the uh, whole homeless debacle downtown, which we spent a lot of time with, uh, start, starting with our star columnist, Steve Lopez, uh, who did such a great job on it that he got a year's worth of columns a book and a movie deal out of. That's how big that story turned out, too. That's multi-platform. That's multi-platform. That's, multi that's, that's a pretty big deal. And that is something that we talk a lot about. You know, L.A. is also, as you know, the city of the haves and the have-nots, and that gap grows wider, it seems, by the week, as, especially as the housing downturn takes hold. That's going to become even more dramatic. So that, the housing story is one way that we're trying to tell that, and um, we, we uh, are trying to devote more time and energy to that in, our, uh, in everything we cover from politics to, to, the, to the economy and to the way that we cover our, our, some of our government institutions. You know, the city of L.A. is looking at, a, as you all know, a fairly steep and dramatic uh, deficit, uh, and that's going to cut into services and everything from health care to education. And so there are a number of ways we're, we're trying to burrow into that story and, and do more. Hi, uh, this is uh, Ishtiak Chisti. I've been subscribing to the paper for the, ever since I've started to live here for the last 25 years, and I love L.A. Times, but... Now that you, you talked about balancing between the printed LA Times and the web, web one, now why does it matter whether you know, even 90% of the people read your paper through the computer versus reading it in the morning in the, uh, the dining room? Because the, the material is essentially the same in, in the, the content. So you talked about shrinking the, the reporters from Washington and other places. Why is that happening? Don't you need reporters on the ground to report online also? I did not plant that question, by the way. <laughs> um, yes, we do. Actually, uh, if you've been a close reader of the website, you'll notice more and more that there is not a lot of overlapping content. That the site throughout the day, uh, we have, if you really wanted to, if you want to spend a fair amount of time, spend a whole day sometime watching the site evolve throughout the day and then go read the paper the next day. But they're getting, they're getting increasingly different. Um, the site has a lot of breaking news on it. You know, in print, we do a front page once every 24 hours. Online, we're doing a new front page, you know, 50 to 100 times a day, uh, and it's constantly changing. A big traffic accident in the morning that will clog up freeway will never make the newspaper anymore, and it'll be on the homepage online, and we'll move stories around depending on their importance and what, what breaks late. And that's one of the things that causes some rift uh, between the two sides within our own newsroom is, is that we have 
one of the things that our print reporters are having a hard time adjusting to is that, well, their story, uh, we had one the other day where the story was on, it was a lead story on the homepage all day long. And when the guy signed on the next morning, it wasn't there. But his story was on the front page of the paper. And I got a message saying, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it was on the front page of the homepage yesterday because that's when the news was. And it's a whole new, if you, if you had any interest in that story yesterday as a consumer of news, you found it, you read it a million different places online. Hopefully ours was one of them. We have to do, in the paper the next day, we have to start, you know, acknowledging that serious consumers of news, which our readers are, have, have access to a lot of this stuff the day before we published, you know, in print. And we've got to be able to tell you a different story, analyze it more, put a different spin on it, or tell you something that you couldn't get from television news, CNN, uh, online, or even our own website. Um, uh, and some of our stories, you know, you'll see... The same, the same reporter will fire for the web and fire for the paper, and they'll, they'll, they'll end up doing 10 to 15 different versions of that story. It'll grow all day long, and it, you'll look at it at 10 o'clock at night, you read the paper the next day. It looks different even over that short of a, amount of time frame. So, but your question's a good one about, yeah, if we end up having to shrink the number of reporting resources in print, doesn't that hurt our online operation? And the short and direct answer is you, you bet it does. And that's one of the things that we're, we're uh, wrestling with is trying to figure out how to... Um, how to balance that really precious juggling act to make sure that we're able to serve both well. I haven't, found, I haven't seen anybody yet who's figured out that, the answer to that magic question yet, but we're still looking. We're all hoping. My name is Saul Kondrotas, and I have two, two things to say. When you gave us a list of innovation at the beginning of your speech, you forgot to mention emails breaking news emails, which is a very convenient thing because you don't have to stay glued for, to, to your screen waiting until the web page changes. <laughs> the, the second thing is that you mentioned uh, Los Angeles Times Radio. Mm-hmm. Myself, having worked for the Radio Free Europe up to 20 years, I think radio is, is a really important thing, and now that I live in Los Angeles... Uh, and enjoy the traffic. Uh, uh, I think the radio, Los Angeles Times Radio, is, 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 is really a big, big deal here. So is there any, de- any deadline uh, for, for such a radio? Uh, we haven't set a deadline yet, but that's one of the things we're going to try to bring to bear on our, in our plan. You can assume that the fact that we have loaded up our executive suite with a bunch of former Clear Channel executives, that, that radio is going to be high on the radar in the near, near future. I did forget to mention the email. Um, we did launch an email blast service February, January of this year, and you can sign up for it on the website. You, you'll get breaking news alerts all day long from us. You can sign up for the Top of the Times thing and some other things. I did neglect to mention that. So, Craig Joseph, within the context that uh, advertising revenue can make or break whether a newspaper survives, what criteria do the advertisers use as to whether or not they're going to uh, dump their advertising revenue in, into print or into some website that has nothing to do with, with newspapers? Well, they get to make that choice when they sign up with us. Again, I'm not, I'm not uh, that familiar with the advertising sales practices, but when they go out to sell, they are selling you on the front end. Do you want to add in the paper? Do you want an ad online? Or do you want some sort of a package deal? And, and uh, I've just exhausted my knowledge on how they sell advertising. <laughs> but we don't just, they don't just give us some money and we dump their ads you know, on the Home and Garden page, which actually is uh, right now commanding the highest advertising rates on our entire website, but you might be surprised. Uh, but um, they know what they're getting into on the front end. One thing to remember about the, the structure of newspapers and news outlets these days is that online advertising uh, you know, gets dimes on the dollar compared to the cost uh, of advertising in print. So it's, uh, it's not a dollar-for-dollar dollar replacement when somebody migrates online. It's a different, it's a different cost ratio, and that's, that's what's messing up newspapers, uh, I think. Right. It's fair to say right. the, the readership reach of the Los Angeles Times is very expen- extensive, even as their paid circulation declines. It's my understanding that your readership is, it's is quite large. It's, bigger than, the it's, yeah, it's bigger than it's ever been. We, re- we reach about 2.4 million people every day with the newspaper, and last month we had 15.5 million unique users online. I mean, that's just... that's. That's why I'm hanging around this business and remain optimistic is because, you know, that's just a, you know, to, uh, in, our, in our high water mark in the early 90s pre-web, we were reaching about a million and a half people a day. So it's, it's you know, gigantically bigger than that. We, re- we get traffic from all over the world, uh, places we've never been able to deliver the paper before. And 
if you're a reporter, you know, you've got the biggest audience you've ever had, and that's a really cool thing to, to be, to be uh, a part of. But what, what ourselves and no one else in the business has been able to quite figure out yet is how to make money off of that and stabilize the, uh, the business. The fact that we've just, that I think in California in particular, that we're heading into some pretty choppy economic waters is, is going to make this a little uh, much more difficult over the next 12 months or so than it might have been otherwise. But, uh, again, that's a cyclical deal that will end at some point, and uh, we will be there when, we, when, uh, when that's over on the backside and uh, hopefully in better shape. So uh, I want to take this moment to thank all of you for coming out. I want to thank uh, the, the good people of Sokolo for setting this up, KPCC, and, of course, the Gene Autry Center here, and most importantly, our guest, Russ Stanton. So thank give you. him a round of applause, please. You're listening to Russ Stanton, editor of the Los Angeles Times, with David Folkenflik. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stenzhold. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in.